Welcome to the Eurointelligence Podcast. I'm Wolfgang Munchau, and with me are Susanne Munchenk and Jack Smith. Today, we're asking the question, does the center hold in European politics? We have problems in France with the center, problems in Germany. Christian Lindner is acting in, shall we say, a rather extreme way to push through what he perceives to be centrist positions. We see Emmanuel Macron in some difficulty in France. Susanna, you've written about this. What is your perspective? France is a special case in the sense that we have a total public outrage about the pension reform. And what was actually a reasonable reform, retirement was to be lifted by two years to 64. The number of years that were required to get the full pension was to be extended. These were the main elements of his pension reform, but for weeks and months, France has been battling this particular reform and it got hammered from the left, it got hammered from the right. So the centre really, with this reform that sounded uh, on paper, sounded very reasonable and very much a centrist, a sort of like from a financial point of view, well, we have to do that because otherwise the, the pension fund will no longer be sustainable. All these rational arguments all of a sudden didn't, didn't hold anymore. Even Les Républicains, uh, who were supposed to back that reform, all of a sudden split in part and had some of the people in their ranks deciding against that reform. Now, with, with all this crisis, um, it benefited usually the Marine Le Pen, not so much Jean-Luc Mélenchon, who was very outspoken against the reform on the left. Uh, no, it was Marine Le Pen who uh, shot in the polls um, and who seemed to be the beneficiary. We've seen polls showing uh, her, the support for her and her party rising, not only for the, the usual suspects like the, the workers, but also amongst commercial people amongst company directors and the only uh, section where she still is below 20% of the approval rate is are the ones who had higher education. But everywhere else, she was actually improving her scores since the legislative elections last year. So what we see, we see in a reinforcement of the two extremes, the left and the right, I mean, you could roughly say in France, it's um, it's a third on the right, it's a third on the far left, and the center has a third, uh, which maybe put yourself in a safe position if you think about the presidential election, if you were to run one centrist candidate uh, against one of the the, the far-end uh, solutions like Marine Le Pen, you would still probably get a majority for a centrist candidate or president, but it does mean governing is much more difficult because you're you're you have a two-third majority against the center in, in parliament. Yeah, um I was just gonna say um on Marine Le Pen specifically, I think one of the reasons why she has done so well is that she almost has managed to capture a sort of silent majority attitude towards this pension reform, in the sense that so for a bit of context, I live in a pretty left-wing area of Paris and the slogans about the Reform de Retraite have gone up next to all of the other left-wing slogans that you see above like the bridges and on the sides of the walls and things like that, right? And it can be very noisy with all the manifestations and stuff like that, the mouvement social. And, but that doesn't really, I think, reflect how a lot of French people feel about the pension reform, which is that they don't really like it and they don't agree with it, but they're not going to get out on the streets about it. And they don't feel like making much of a fuss about it necessarily. And I think that's where Le Pen has got to, where 
She has publicly opposed the reform, but she is not going to start kicking down the door about it. There comes a point, I think, at which you almost seem to be doing more harm than good by being so vociferous against this. And she's managed, I think, to strike the right balance there. I think what you mentioned about the Assemblée Nationale and the challenges there legislatively are completely correct. And that, I mean, that's almost kind of, I, I wouldn't say that's baked into the French political system, but certainly it's partly a function of it where you have the strong presidentialism, which means that you kind of are propelled in by the second round least bad option effect. Plus, you have to deal with the, with the Assemblée Nationale and, and the legislative process. And because that's elected in such a different way, it can turn out completely differently. I we saw a poll that suggested that two-thirds, roughly two-thirds of the French electorate now support parties of the far left and the far right. Yeah. Uh, that does not translate into, we cannot extrapolate these numbers into the next presidential elections, not only because they're far away, but also because this is a, a, the way the system works, because you get a first round and the second round, and a centrist candidate has usually prevailed over an extremist candidate, even though the, the electorate may not have pre uh, centrist preferences. Is this something we can rely all the time, or will there, is it possible that at one point voters of the left might support a candidate of the right or vice versa against the centrist? So could this system that has benefited the center, could this turn against the center at some point? I think that really depends on how now everything is panning out and whether or not Macron will hold it in a sense that Uh, this whole unrest, this whole uh, exasperation comes to a halt or that he can actually move to the page to a next reform. So um, that depends not only on him uh, and his unpopularity at the moment, or how he actually can remake a connection to the French, but it, it depends on his uh, team, on his cabinet, where you see two ministers coming out with their own agenda and seem to want to score thinking already ahead of time uh, of the era without Macron uh, and for, for them in the present presidential elections. Uh, and it also depends, of course, on the, on the people. We have the trade unions who still refuse to, uh, there's, there's going to be a protest uh, on May the 1st. We see how that goes, well, how many people are still ready to, to fight this pension reform, which actually we haven't mentioned this yet, but which is by now law. And so uh, it has gone through the first stages, has been confirmed by the Constitutional Council. So it is a law right now. It could be challenged in the courts. And there is another initiative to get another referendum question going. But whether these attempts are really going anywhere, we don't know. It's quite insurrectional, this mood, but that might well be just this blast. And you just have to steer through. Macron, that seems to be his plan, steering it through, waiting for this whole wave tsunami to, to calm down eventually. Yeah, I think as well, it's highly situational. A lot of it depends on what issues are going to come out to the fore in the run-up to the 2027 presidential election, in the sense that the, the first thing is there are clearly some issues on which the far left and the far right agree. Broadly speaking, they are for a more interventionist state economically, and that is an important point of similarity between the two of them. You can certainly see that lots of younger people who might feel more economically insecure in France at the moment um, vote for both far left and far right politicians. You know, the kind of two most popular politicians, if you look at younger voters in France, would be Jean-Luc Mélenchon and Marine Le Pen. 
So that that's one thing. However, these voters will also disagree on certain other things. So if an issue where Rassemblement National are still seen by many people on the left as a little bit toxic start to come out, uh, anything to do with social values, for instance, that might be another story. Uh, another thing is if there is some sort of crisis that engulfs France or Europe or the world more generally in the run-up to the 2027 election. I think, as we kind of know, crises produce a bit of a rally around the flag effect, albeit often a short-lived one. And in if this happens in the middle of a crisis, as opposed to in the immediate aftermath of one, you kind of might want a bit of a safe pair of hands. And again, this depends on who runs. But I mean, for instance, I see somebody like Edouard Philippe in my head. I think in a crisis, a lot of French people would feel like they would probably want somebody like Edouard Philippe to be president. He handled the crisis phase of the pandemic very well. And in my mind was almost shuffled out of the premiership because he was handling it too well and was um, not fulfilling the traditional prime ministerial role of flak jacket for the president. So it kind of depends on that, right? But also, as you say, it depends on the candidate. And it's interesting because the centrists have been around for so long and they've absorbed so much, so many of the other kind of politicians on the center right and center left that virtually anybody with any government experience at this point is going to be with the centrists. The, the only problem with the scenario where, you know, the, in, in crises, electorates huddle to the center, that's certainly true historically. But that's also true because the centrist politicians have handled crises rather well in the past. And they might if, not necessarily in the future. If the perception is that they don't handle it well, I mean, you know, you look at various politicians in the UK, Johnson was probably the most centrist of the lot that we've had in, in terms of the classic left-right divisions in the, in the Conservative Party, but he was certainly not considered to be the sort of a safe pair of hands at a, at a particular time. Yeah, I think that's a big disillusionment with the centre. We always hoped that the centre would hold. I mean, we can see with Emmanuel Macron, there are a lot of disappointments uh, with the intellectuals, with the professionals who actually backed him, uh, definitely from the left, who were hoping for Macron to bring this revolution to France, uh, but in, a, in an ordered way. But he didn't. He didn't it, it's not that. his temperament, it's right. It's, it's not his temperament, and it's, it's, it's more like all over the place. He didn't deliver on that. So there's still this dissatisfaction as even amongst the, the left who would have preferred a centrist to deliver. And uh, the question is whether they would be ready to, to jump the ship and say, well, we need something radical. I, I think as well, and this comes back to it, it's partly a question of temperament, but it's also a question, I think, of different kinds of centrism. And I think as we move into talking a bit more about Germany, this is something that's good to keep in mind. I think there is a bit of a difference between, say, radical centrism, like a very reform-oriented centrism, and the kind of safe pair of hands centrism, right? And it can be quite difficult to sell yourself as a safe pair of hands centrist when you are both ideologically and temperamentally a radical one, right? So I, I kind of think that Macron deep and in, deep inside his heart is more of a radical centrist than a kind of, you know, traditional one. And I mean, the other person that this reminds me of as well as Boris Johnson is, of course, Matteo Renzi, who is almost the embodiment of radical centrism, yeah, not just in ideology, but in personality. You know, he's uh, known in Italian as il dottimadore, which is, you know, like the scrapper. And, yeah, 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 but but he failed, and 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 you know if you can say Macron, he, he succeeded in the sense that he got reelected, but politically is failing, right? And you could, it, it is not too extreme to conclude that radical centrism 
which was the great hope of the center. I remember this. This was, mm-hmm. you know, when, when Renzi came and there was sort of a new sort of wind. Oh, there was, a, there was uh, an energy around Renzi, wasn't there? Absolutely. Uh, and this hasn't been, what happened in Italy? Italy is in many ways a good example because the centers failed in Italy. The center right, the center, you know, the center, center part of the center right ended up essentially is corrupt. The center, the center left party of the PD uh, has failed to win its successive elections with Letta and, uh, and and now they've been pretty much marginalised within the PD itself. And now exactly now the PD has moved to the left under 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 their new leader, uh, yeah. uh, Elie Schlein. Once the radical centre fails, that was the, I think the lesson of Italy. Once the radical centre fails, we're seeing the sort of um, you know centrifugal drift in the in the in the political spectrum, and that, that was. Something one should bear in mind, then, then uh, because the Italy, Italy, there is a crisis, and there have been many crises. I mean, Italy went for Mario Draghi, which was the safe pair of hands, mm-hmm. but that wasn't the voters. That was, you know, the establishment. Everybody, you know, who was in parliament, the president, the voters went for. Yeah, it was a very weird situation where Mario Draghi was pop- personally popular with the electorate, but yeah, they they didn't vote. Went, they didn't vote for. They didn't vote for that. It was Sam and Monty. Uh, when people often mistook the popularity of individuals with their ability to hold majorities. Mm-hmm. This is something completely different. And that's the, the, the difficulty of the Senate. Germany is a different case. Um, there is more of a traditional centrist. You have a tradition. You have no radical center. There is sort of the FTP trying to be radical, but it's basically an attempt to be radical and loud. They've, they com- they've confused radical and loud. Radical about its traditional values. You know, its traditional values is not... You know, the FDP has a small wing and they pretend that they care about like new businesses and upstarts. And I think this is sort of a very attractive part of Germany is, is a pretty a country, pretty hostile to new, to businesses in general. You wouldn't normally want to run a small business in Germany because there's so many parts of the system stacked against you from bureaucracy to the way companies are taxed to the way what happens if you try to go public and sell the company. Uh, it's not a country that is, you know, made for the sort of 21st century entrepreneurial world and the FTP had a certain uh, interest in, in the segment but it, what really prevailed was the ultra conservatives the lobby with um, you know essentially the work the closeness with large companies so the car the car companies Lindner is particularly close to the Porsche but also the closeness to certain so traditional parts of the FTP's electorate the FTP has traditionally recruited its voters from just pharmacists lawyers the FTP has been traditionally... But basically uh, professionals who tend to operate in private or semi-private that's practice. Right. That's right. Uh, I mean, a classic tax advisor would be a classical one. But doctors, pharmacists, these were sort of classical lawyers, classical professions, which were FTP voter because the, the FTP would would look after their specific concerns. And the FTP was also protectionism. So for example, with respect of the pharmacists, the FDP was not a liberal party. It was a very much a, mar- a party for market regulation. It protected the franchise of a pharmacist. For example, in contrast to what happened like in Italy, where they deregulated the markets. And that's something the Germans never did. So each or pharmacist, in the UK where, you yeah, know, each pharmacist has kind of got a, got a, got a turf, basically. And that's something that they have. Your pharmacists are, are very high incomes in Germany. And that is also not the case in other, other countries. And this has been sort of an FDP thing. And, and, in terms of macroeconomic policy, they follow the old, very old German right orthodox way from the 1950s, the, the so-called order liberalism ideology, which means the government shouldn't run any deficits under any circumstances. This is the central bank should focus only on stabilizing inflation. And fiscal austerity, they always supported this. And they 
And they were never even listening to arguments about efficiency because they didn't care. It was an ideological thing. So the answer is to say that we, you know, we can have an optimal fiscal policy. They're not interested in an optimal fiscal policy. It is, it is a belief system that this is in the long run the best thing. So, so even if they, they are, they might recognize that, it, that a pro-cyclical policy might produce some welfare losses. But they say that in the long run, once you keep everything stable, it is the best one. And they will always say, look, Germany's been a very successful economy. Their fallacy of composition is, is different. What um, worked in the past should not be abandoned. Absolutely. And so it's, it's not the radical center. And we don't have that in Germany. There is no radical center. But the center has worked in Germany. But we have to also understand why it worked and why it didn't work in other European countries. I mean, we've had four consecutive grand coalitions. We now have a coalition that is ultimately a centrist one as well, centrist with some green elements, but in political terms, very centrist, very pro-business, they haven't done anything, they haven't done any really radical things, except to switch off the new nuclear power stations, but that was a green thing. That was also, that was already kind of started and by... It started, Merkel started. Merkel started it, right? The, green, the Greens, they, they were, I mean, what, what tried to, I mean, the... The, the lobby always assumed that that wouldn't happen, but they didn't reckon with the fact that there was a green minister at the time when it happened. So this thing really, really happened. And that is what, what was sort of a mis, you know, kind of a centrist miscalculation. Yeah. I mean, I think the other um, thing there is what they didn't realize is that the Greens really cared about nuclear power. They did not really care about order liberalism. And the liberals really cared about order liberalism, but they did not really care about nuclear power. And so we have both. And that's why we have the exit of from nuclear power. The Greens got a few of their sort of tokens. But the, the politics is still auto-liberal. The reason why this sort of old centrism has worked in Germany is because Germany has benefited uniquely from another events that took place in the first two decades of the century that didn't help other countries nearly as much. The three events that I see were A, the labor reforms that they did. That was an actual SPD thing. These were competitive reforms. They were a disaster for the Eurozone if one part tries to get a competitive advantage of the other. But that was not a good thing, but it helped Germany relatively to Italy, relatively to France. Yeah. The second thing were revolution in supply chain management that allowed German companies to be the hub of a global system. And the third aspect, probably the biggest one, was, was turbo globalization and on world stage. And... Uh, Eastern enlargement. Eastern enlargement was one of those that was really picked these, up. So basically, it, it it lowered labor costs. It produced lots of lots of you know influx of labor directly, but it also allowed Germany to use Eastern Europe as you know as part of this global supply no, chain. They, they were effectively extensions of the German manufacturing network. It became sort of a network. You know, Germany benefited from these networks, and all these factors colluded in favor of a political consensus that favored the status quo. It was not sustainable. But these were things that over a very long time uh, helped. And this kind of ended almost to the same time when Merkel ended, when Merkel left. This really was a, a part of Merkel and Schroeder, maybe these two sort of chancellors oversaw this period. And it kind of really, the, it ended, I think it ended with a pandemic. And she's just, you know, she stayed in office for another year, but it was, it was sort of the pandemic ended all the global supply chain efficiency, reevaluating our relationship with China. Obviously, we have reevaluated our relationship with Russia. Um, reevaluation being a bit of an understatement there. <laughs> for some, also, kind of Russia reevaluated the relationship for us. Yes, yes. <laughs> that happened. So there was a number of things that changed. German wages are now rising faster than they do in, in other countries because uh, of labor supply 
and bottlenecks. So we're seeing that a lot of these things that went you know, were sort of a tailwind for Germany are becoming turning into a headwind. And that's why I worry that the, that Germany will not continue with this middle of the road consensus when problems arise, as they did in Italy and in, in, in France. I mean, this political fragmentation that we saw in those countries, but also in smaller countries, is not the result of uh, you know electorates going funny. This is the result of stuff that happened in those countries about existential threats to livelihoods and uh, you know sh- social changes that you know, didn't think they couldn't cope with. Many things, immigration that changed communities. That you know, life is today very different than it was twenty years ago. And whereas in the early part of, only later part of last century, you know, things move much more, more slowly. I expect the same to happen in Germany too, with a delay. Yeah, and I think I was going to say two things about this. One is that I think a compounding factor of this potential radicalization is two different kinds of regional disparities opening up in Germany, or not opening up, but being present in Germany. Uh, One of them is still ongoing regional disparities, not just economically, but socially and culturally between East Germany and West Germany, which I think we could all agree are still very present, um, not just economically, but socially and politically in terms of attitudes. Um, And the second one would be an increasing disparity again socioculturally and economically between life for people working in the big cities of Germany. So I think particularly of Berlin, Hamburg and Munich in this and in kind of the towns and, you know, other parts of the country, right? So urban professionals, as in the rest of the developed world, who are working what are supposed to be middle-class jobs and finding that rents and housing are rising through the roof, their lives are getting much more expensive and they no longer have access to the middle-class lifestyle they expected. These two things kind of can compound each other and produce a bit of a kind of cleaving effect, I think, politically. To a certain extent, we've seen that already in some other Western European countries and in the United States, but then this this might eventually happen there. The second thing I was going to say, and this kind of comes to where I think the radical centrists went wrong, is something I also see that's visible in Germany, right? Which is that um, the FDP, they did very, very well with young people in the previous election. However, I don't really think they've internalized why they did well with young people. And I think why they did well with young people is because a lot of young voters wanted, as I see it, they wanted modernization. So a shift to green technology, a shift to digital. But as in the rest of Europe, being increasingly maybe influenced by Anglo-American thinking, they wanted it in a more individualist fashion. And that was what the FDP, they thought, gave them. Now, it turns out, I don't think that that's something they've really pursued while in government. I don't think it's been a serious message of theirs. And I think that's a failing. And I think it's also a lesson for the radical centrists. Like, I think there is some opportunity for centrists in Europe. Coming back to Italy and Renzi, right? an alliance between Matteo Renzi and Carla Calenda, another kind of radical centrist, they actually did very well among young people, like the youngest age cohort in Italy. And I think, again, that radical centrism has an appeal for maybe people who want a more modern country that is more forward-looking and forward-facing, one that's also to a certain extent more European too, but in a more individualist way, right? In a more personal responsibility-oriented way. I think this was never something the radical centrists really captured. And it has, I think, been a real lost lesson for the centrists. 
listening to Lindner, it sounds like it's, it's, he's more appealing to the older generation rather than the young people with all the no to the ban of the fuel driven car. Then the, the austerity also, uh, this is the theme of the past. And then there's the Sparkassen where he's actually on the siding with the Sparkassen rather than thinking about a future that it might be different. Um, and I think that's, that's probably where we are. So we have the, the radical, and even if you look at the left, uh, radicalism, radicalism is also Jean-Luc Mélenchon has this kind of revolutionary kind of type. He has the radicality of it, but it's more like overthrowing. He needs the enemy in order to, to actually exist in, in that sense. So if he doesn't have the center to go against with, what would be Jean-Luc Mélenchon? That's different from Le Pen now because she, as you rightly said, so she she marked her own pace and uh, it works in her agenda um, and it uh, it puts her into the middle ground. And that's that's the scary bit. Where's the middle ground? Where's the new center? If we're moving all kind of either to the left or to the right more. Um, and maybe that's because that the center doesn't have this identifying vision for the future because it's so trapped in the past that we repeat the past again and again which may uh, resonate with older workers, but no longer with them. Yeah. Lindner is, um, you're right about the young voters in the last election. I don't think he has that many vote, young voters left. Oh, they, the polling they, shows that, I think. They, 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 you know, they went big for digitalization. It was a big theme, and that was the theme they kind of neglected in, the, in government. And also, the, you know, it's, it, it goes also against this other thing, which is fiscal consolidation. So what they decided was to, to move back to the, the, the old, more you know, familiar home turf of fiscal consolidation and you know general pro-business positions. Pro-doctors uh, who like to drive fast cars. Exactly. That's very much the way. And they, they thought there are probably more doctors who could vote for them and who didn't last time than the young people who vote for them and turning them around. So the FDP's electorate is probably aging, but I suspect it, it, it will work for him. He was on the decline. He lost a number of state elections. There are a number, there are a number of state elections to come. But you know he's back in the news now. He's pro protesting. He's protesting everything the Greens do. So there is definitely tension in the government. Tension in the government works for him. It doesn't work for Olaf Scholz, but it works for him. And it works for his party's uh, attempt to sort of remain in, in office. And all they're looking for is to gain over 5% at the next election, which is a, a, a realistic uh, outcome. It doesn't necessarily mean that this coalition has a, a majority next time. This is, you know, I think they, the Greens will, will certainly reassess whether they would want to do this again. Um, yeah, and I was going to say to the kind of point that Susanna made, I do think, you know, a new world is kind of emerging and it doesn't seem like the centrists really have much to say about that, right? So for instance, as a sign of this new world emerging, uh, one of the things I wrote about this week was an upcoming, well, several failed merger attempts between two large mining companies, right? So Glencore and Tech. Glencore has repeatedly tried to acquire Tech. They failed. But the idea is these businesses both have very large coal parts and Tech has long planned to spin off its coal industry and focus on copper, right? So copper is essential for pretty much any electrical component you can think of. To complete the green transition, we are going to have to massively electrify our energy systems, meaning that copper is going to be much bigger in the future, you know, tomorrow than it is today. And tech can see dollar signs in their eyes. Glencore can see dollar signs in their eyes. And that's why you have this entire corporate drama playing out between these two companies. And this is really for where we are going to be in maybe 10, 15 years time, or I, I don't know precisely when, but at some point in the future, this kind of new world. And it feels like on the left and maybe the center left, there's enthusiasm for this. On the, on the populist right, people are pushing back against this. 
but then you have the center in the middle and they just don't seem to have anything to say about it. Okay, I think we are concluded with the podcast for today. Well, thank you for listening and until next week.